From the WUFT Newsroom in Gainesville, Florida, I'm Ethan Majok. Welcome back to The Point. We've been away from your feed for a few weeks, and we've been thinking, thinking not only about how to cover the news every day, but how to bring it to you in this weekly podcast in a way that's worth your time. We've experimented with this podcast off and on for more than a year, but little of that experimentation has taken into account what you, the listener, might actually want. It's time for us to listen. If you have ideas or suggestions about what the future of this show should sound like, send them our way. That goes for story ideas, recurring segments, even music selection. Basically, what do you want from a local news podcast? Just a roundup of what we broadcast on 89.1 FM every day? Behind-the-scenes sessions with our reporters, interviews with local newsmakers? Is it serial-style courtroom coverage? Maybe some simple oral histories from extraordinary yet regular people who live near you. We welcome all suggestions, and with your help, we'll keep experimenting. Email us at news at wuft.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. This week, we catch up with one of our former reporters who watched a man die last week in Florida's death chamber. Then, in the last days before white nationalist Richard Spencer visits the University of Florida campus, we hear one of the school's own faculty members, a First Amendment expert about the constitutionality of a visit that many on campus would prefer to just be prohibited. Finally, it's a trip back to Lockloosa Lake for our Find Out Florida segment. Hurricane Irma gave us a reason to update the Lockloosa story from earlier this year. First, let's go back inside the Florida State Prison. On the phone, I am joined by former WFT News reporter Becky Marr. Becky graduated from our newsroom and the University of Florida early this year and now works at Wink TV in Fort Myers. But she returned to us for one more story, that of Michael Lambrix's execution last week. She was invited to be a media witness to the execution, and that's where I'll let her pick up the story. Becky, what was last Thursday like for you, especially leading up to the execution? Before I start, I do want to say that um, I do work for Wink News, but the my opinions and my story does not reflect the opinions of Wink News. Understood. But with that being said, so last Thursday, I finished my shift at Wink News. I headed home, packed, and then I headed straight to Rayford, Florida, where the Florida State Prison is at. And when I got there, it was, it was fast-paced and also not fast-paced at the same time. I was the last reporter to arrive, and there were five of us, supposed to be six reporters, and we all headed in a van that headed to the Florida State Prison, and then we headed to a visitation room, and that's where it didn't, it wasn't fast-paced anymore. It was actually four hours of waiting, and we actually thought that the execution was delayed. We couldn't call anyone. We couldn't check on what was going on. The DOC officials didn't tell us anything And we just waited there. And the weird thing was, I was very nervous because I have, I've never been to an execution before. And these other reporters have, they were just telling me what to expect. And I think the buildup was the scary part because I heard all these stories from like, oh, don't worry, but be like, be aware that they will shake him to make sure he's dead. So those little things, they were in my head for a long time. And then when we all thought it was over, um, one of the wardens came in and she was like, all right, let's go. And we walked down this long corridor of the prison, headed out of the prison, went to the death chamber, which they still call it the death chamber. And 
from there, we, um, well, we took a van to the death chamber, and then we went into a very small room, and that's when it got very real. And I think that part, how fast it was, was scary, because it also didn't feel like 11 minutes. It felt like an hour. It was very, to me, it was very slow and tedious, and every second was very drawn out. And the reporters were telling me it's very anticlimactic, and they're right. Like, no one was crying, no one was screaming, and it was very quiet. But at the same time, how simple and how, well, yeah, how simple it was. So you're one of the few reporters we've had who actually has gone inside the Florida State Prison, which is known as death row here. The parts that you did see, what's what's it like? I mean, just kind of describe the, the inside, those hallways and so forth. Um, It's a bleak white hallway very empty not decorated not very pretty and you actually kind of you feel this eerie vibe to it and you don't want to be there to be honest and it just looks very outdated and there's just no windows and it's bleak there's no way of really describing it to be anything else um the one weird thing was the visitation room that we were in it's for families and kids to come in. So they had these painted windows and it was very weird and really creepy at the same time. Like one window had a picture of the ocean, but you could tell someone just like glued it to the wall and it was already peeling. And they were trying to make it appealing and comfortable for families, but it was the opposite effect because it just highlighted that you're in a prison and it's not very exciting and it can't be comfortable. I'm sorry, it was a little more than 11 minutes because we got in at 9.53 and the time of death was 10.10, I believe. It was very procedural. They had to go step by step and it's what the reporters were telling me about. So you get in there and the state witnesses, which are 12 witnesses, are already seated. And then we walked in, we sat in the back row and all you see is this huge window and a brown curtain. And the weird part was it was like you were watching a show. All of a sudden, the curtain goes up, and you see Michael Lambricks already on the gurney with a white sheet um, covering him. His arms are already tied down, and you see three people, three officials. Um, two, I think, were DOC members. I'm not sure who the last one was, but they were all officials who worked with the execution. Then they started the... Sorry, it's very weird recounting everything. You didn't see a doctor go in there until the end to check if he died. Um, he was already hooked up. So that's why it was so fast and, I guess, easy. Um, easy is not the right word. But what happened was the execution warden, he grabbed the phone, he was talking to the governor's office, making sure there were no appeals, everything was okay, Supreme Court didn't say no. And from there, he asked him what his last words were. Lambricks recited the Lord's Prayer, ended with, Deliver us from evil. Amen. And then the weird part was, he looked at the window. Now, the window was a one-way mirror. We can see him. He couldn't see us. And the weird thing was, he kept nodding. So it was as if he could see us. And that part was a little sad. And you could tell that people... Um, on the other side of the window, their eyes started tearing up. My eyes started tearing up. It was just, he knew it was coming. And from there, no one said start, begin, or go. 
it just happened. He closed his eyes, and you could start seeing his chest move, and everyone just, you could feel the whole room just holding their breath for that duration time. And all of a sudden, no one moved. His chest stopped moving. The warden looked at him, and this part still disturbed me, even though I had a warning about it. The warden flicked his eyes and then shook him. And they say they have to do that to make sure that it worked. And then from there, a doctor came in, and then there was a lot of silence. Everyone just stood there. And then he said it was over, and we all walked out. You mentioned the letter writing and some background on one of the victims, Alicia Bryant. Uh, How does she play into the last letter that you had sent as well as his final press conference? So my biggest regret writing to Michael was that we barely mentioned the victims, And Alicia was truly the only victim in Michael's words. The one thing that I regret not doing is reaching out to her family. I tried and I couldn't find them. And other reporters said that they just tried to wipe their hands clean, didn't want anything to do with it. But I kind of singled Michael out in the last letter. And I told him that his whole time in prison, he was fighting for his innocence, but he made it all about himself. And he didn't talk about the victims unless asked, but made his whole claim to innocence about how he was there for the, at the wrong time. He just looked and he saw it happen and he tried to be the hero. But I wish he made it about seeking vengeance and justice for Alicia because her family had to deal with this. And DOC did tell us that her sister was one of the witnesses in that room. They wouldn't tell us who she was or what she looked like, but we do know she was sitting in one of those rows. I'm not sure if Michael ever read my letter. I will never know. But he did say in the group interview. The last thing I want to do is cause any more pain or suffering to the Bryant's family. They've been through enough, and I just wish them nothing but peace. I have nothing but sympathy for them. I understand that they need to believe that I killed their daughter. I understand that for them that is what closure is about, Um, but I also know that they are wrong. And if my execution will bring them peace, then maybe that at least comes out of it. A part of me wants to think that maybe it was my letter that made him grip reality and realize what's going on and how he can change something in his last days. I'm not sure. Or maybe he just had a change of heart. So I honestly, I'll never know. That was the first time you saw an execution, obviously. What has this week been like since for you personally? Obviously, you've gone back to work, but beyond that. I have. Um, it's been a little weird. And at first, I was very frustrated because so many people went up to me and they're like, oh, my gosh, how was it? Like, how was it being in that room? Can you tell us what was going on? And I was really upset because for me, it was kind of emotional because I, I knew him and I talked to him. And it was kind of sad to see his fight for innocence die because he did work for 33 years trying to appeal the courts, trying to appeal his sentence. And that was part of the delay for the last three hours, right? It was supposed to happen at 6 o'clock, didn't happen until Mm -hmm. 10, yeah, four hours. Michael had so many appeals filed that they really had to go through each one. And the other reporters were telling me that some of his appeals were handwritten. So... It was several pages. Um, But what I was saying before, 
it was hard, actually. And it still is kind of hard because it's not an experience that will go away. And it's kind of sticking with me. And I think it'll stick with me forever, to be honest. But I realized I have to tell people what I saw and what I felt because not many people get to go through this um, experience, if you would call it. There were only six reporters approved to go. Only five of us went. And DOC told us 12 reporters get the chance to go. But besides that, you can't record anything. All you have is one notepad and two pencils. And that whole testimony is to let people know who are outside the prison that the execution was humane and safe, that the prisoner did not go through any harm. So I started to realize that I have to tell people what I saw because they'll never know and they'll never see it. Um, But besides that, I think it's really hard to see someone die and no one can really bounce back from it. But you take away the experience and you learn from it. Becky, thank you so much. You can read Becky's full piece at our website, wuft.org. Our newsroom is busy planning for Richard Spencer's visit, covering all angles of that story set to unfold this coming Thursday on the University of Florida campus. From public safety and law enforcement to the speech itself, plus the protest scene outside the venue. And in the final two weeks before his visit, we wanted to hear from Spencer himself, but also to address the constitutional reasons why the university must allow him to speak here. UF professor Clay Calvert is an expert on the First Amendment, and he gave his three-minute answer on why, like it or not, Spencer and his followers cannot be barred from campus. Initially, the First Amendment is relevant uh, to Richard Spencer speaking at the University of Florida campus because the University of Florida is a public institution, meaning it's a government entity. The First Amendment protects against government censorship. And so therefore, the First Amendment is relevant because if the University of Florida were not to allow Richard Spencer to speak on campus, it would raise a First Amendment-based issue. Uh, If we were a private university, there would be no First Amendment issue, and a private university could exclude uh, Richard Spencer from campus without raising any constitutional questions. How is this supported by the University of Florida Student Honor Code? Well, the University of Florida Student Honor Code suggests that the university is a marketplace of ideas, and as a marketplace of ideas, students should be exposed to all different viewpoints, even on subjects that might offend them or even with viewpoints they might find offensive or disagreeable. So. To add to that, and I think it's very important, a university, a public university especially, should not be an echo chamber uh, or a filter bubble where students are only exposed to ideas uh, to which they already agree or that they like. Uh, So the First Amendment is there to protect minority viewpoints, dissenting viewpoints. And by minority viewpoints, I don't mean necessarily racial minorities or religious minorities or sexual minorities, the small fringe viewpoint. And so... Richard Spencer has talked a lot about trying to spark discourse and discussion, uh, and that's actually a useful thing on a college campus. As long as he is not trying to provoke violence uh, and inciting people, his followers, to commit violence, uh, having discussions about issues involving race, uh, especially in a polarized climate in the United States today, I think are very important. 
part of the problem with trying to censor speech because it's offensive or disagreeable is defining what is offensive. Uh, the term offensive is hugely vague. Uh, one person is going to find something offensive that another person will not. Uh, the Supreme Court, in a case called Cohen versus California, back in 1971, said that one man's vulgarity is another's lyric. Uh, and that taps into the notion that how do we find what is offensive, what is disagreeable? Some people are going to love what he says, and others won't. And it's not the government's job to be in the business of drawing that line. So think of it this way for people who don't want Richard Spencer to speak on campus. Most of those people also don't like Donald Trump. But Donald Trump is the government. Would they like Donald Trump to decide what's offensive and disagreeable to him and therefore exclude that speech? Probably not. So we have to tolerate, under the First Amendment, a lot of speech that is intolerant of others. And so that's kind of an irony of having the First Amendment. Spencer is scheduled to speak Thursday at 2.30 p.m. at UF's Phillips Center. We close with this. Christina Morales has reported a story off and on for us this year about Lochlusa Lake. Christina, tell me about Lochlusa Lake. Where is it, and what does it mean for the people who live there? Sure. So, um, Lochlusa Lake is a little bit, it's in Hawthorne. And to the people that live there, um, they pay. They have a lot of. They have waterfront property in front of the lake, so they have docks that go into the lake. And um, they've lost a lot of water due to a sinkhole in Orange Lake and other places that the uh, the water from the lake uh, runs off into. And so, um, when the last time that I was there in June, um, the water levels were so low that some of the docks had exposed um, hydrilla and greenery growing out of it. And um, since I came back, the uh, water levels, the, wa- the water levels were much higher after Hurricane Irma, up to the point that it was reaching the backyard of the uh, person I interviewed, Marie Trawick. And um, when I had gone back, the water levels had gone down already so much. She says it goes down about six inches. She said it went down about six inches since I was last there on Sunday. So um, the water level goes down every day, and um, when I was there, uh, it actually was much higher. It was up to the point where um, it was almost up to the dock. That hydrilla that you mentioned you saw back in June, what is it? What does it look like, and why does it matter for ecology and the people who live there again? Sure. The hydrilla is um, growing from the lake itself, and um, it's really difficult for people to access their docks and to access the, um, to put a boat through the hydrilla, which is why it's a problem. It's also a problem because it invades the, d- the area of the dock. It just doesn't look uh, very appealing to look at as well. And um, so people are having a hard time with that because they're not allowed to trim it um, and they're not allowed to touch it because it's not their property. It's of the uh, Latchua County. Local state agency that regulates this is the St. John's Water Management District, and they've given you a lot of data um, talking about where the lake has been historically low, and now it's pretty much at a historic high point or close to it? It was pretty close to a his- historic high point in uh, after Hurricane Irma. They said the peak was at September 14th. It was about almost 60 feet. Um, the last time that it was that high was in 1948, and it was just about 68, just about 60 feet. I think it was about 60.7 feet. Um, so in terms of historical record, um, it did break um, the rain it was a, th- this was a very wet season um, for Gainesville, as Michael Daly said. And um, Michael Daly was talking about how um, this season itself, we had about 59 inches of rain. Coupled with, we had the wettest record, uh, wettest 
somewhere on record for the Gainesville area from May through September up to the hurricane was nearly 59 inches of rain for the right now from uh, May 1st through September the 25th. And with Hurricane Irma, there were some areas of Alachua County that had up to 12 inches of rain. So all of that water just has no choice but to run off into the lake. Before it started raining so much in May, it was as low as it had been. The last time that it was that low was in 2012. It was a drought. And actually, um, Christine Mundy told me that it was actually at a pretty stable level. Um, the it would be considered it would the lake would be considered to be in a drought if it was at 54 feet, but it was actually at 57 feet. So it was actually healthier than people who thought it was lower than ever, and that's how we originally started with this story, right? The perception was that it's never been lower. Right. Um, it just looked lower to people because they weren't used to those wa- low water levels. But um, Christine Mundy says that that area is used, that lake is used to fluctuations of water levels like that. So Marie Trawick, who lives out there and you've talked with now a couple of times, what's her story? How long has she been there and what is she seeing now? Sure. So uh, Marie Trawick has been living at Lake Lochlusa since um, 1996. Um, she, her husband lives there with her and she also raised some kids there. When we first moved here, the fishing off of our dock was wonderful. (laughs) It has since gone downhill. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, they oversprayed the lake many years ago. Uh, There was a big fish kill many years ago. And um, I don't know that the lake has recovered from that. Um, and the water levels keep going up and down. You have to go all the way out to the middle of the lake to do any kind of fishing in any water that's over six feet deep. And you can't fish from your dock a lot of times because it's only, you know, a foot deep or two feet deep, and then it's covered with hydrilla. She says that her husband loved to fish on the lake when they first had it, and um, for the past few years since the drought, Um, the water levels have gone down. Um, Marie Trawick um, maintains the area. She cleans it up a little bit, picks up the trash that flows in. Um, But her husband hasn't been able to really fish until now um, for the past few years. Um, She says that he's gone out fishing a handful of times, but he hasn't really found much. Um, And he's really getting, he's really enjoying these um, high water levels to go out and do that. What does the immediate future look like for the lake? It's going to recede every day a little bit is always going to recede. Christine Mundy says that she expects that the water levels to go down and um, continue to go down because now the uh, lake is draining into Orange Lake and other areas, other lakes that it's con- and streams that it's connected to. Um, Michael Daly said the same thing, and really it's because um, the we're not going to have as much rain now. The rainy season has kind of ended. So the peak that the lake could have been at was in September, and early October, and now until um, maybe January is what he said, a January, February time, um, there isn't as much rain, so there isn't rain to maintain the water levels in Lake Lapalooza. Christina, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Thank you. If you haven't already, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and send us your suggestions from what you want to hear every week from your local public radio station. The email address is news at wuft.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.